Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. My name is Tony Horton. I am a foster parent trainer at DCS, and I'm your host for this edition today. Our topic today is child sex trafficking and exploitation. We have with us Miss Andrea Nash of DCS. Andrea, how are you today? I'm good, Tony. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So before we get into the topic, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I have been with uh, the department for nine years. Prior to coming on full-time, I contracted with them about seven years, uh, providing foster parent training to foster parents across the state. Um, Prior to that, I did um, child abuse prevention and uh, taught MAP and PATH classes prior to our uh, Tennessee Key courses. So I feel like I've been around a long time. (laughs) When I first started with DCS um, back in 2012, I never really expected to find myself writing material for training. However, in 2013, I was tasked with uh, writing my first um, course, and it was what to know about child exploitation and human trafficking. And that course uh, really opened my eyes to the prevalence of child sexual abuse um, in the world, Um, but not only that, in foster care as well. Um, So at that point, I became personally interested. I had a teenager at the time, and um, she was at that age where, you know, you want to find out where they're going and what they're doing and who they're talking to. So um, this just became a real personal interest that I had. So while I was completing that curriculum, I became personally interested in doing more to kind of combat this crime against children and adults. It's when I discovered a gym in our own community here in Jackson, uh, the Scarlet Rope Project. So I began attending events and also worked with the volunteer program, which included some work uh, putting together their volunteer training curriculum. Uh, Then I later became a board member for a period of time, and it just really became a major interest outside of work. It became something very personal. Yeah, that's excellent. So while we see your professional experience in this and writing the curriculum, and your personal interactions with organizations in your area, if you could, could you maybe give us a kind of a rough definition of, of human trafficking? So really, it's a it's a modern day slavery. Um, and basically what happens is traffickers um, target people, men and women, boys and girls, to be part of this criminal activity. And they exploit and use those victims that they that they target. Uh, for sex and labor in order to make money. And it is a billion dollar industry. It is second only to drug trafficking. And we see that those youth that are involved typically are pulled in to that life between the ages of 12 and 14. So very young, they seek out young, vulnerable children. What really opened my eyes, Tony, was What we discovered or what I discovered was that all the women in that program, they were in the child welfare system. They were in foster care at some point. About 99% 
had been sexually abused. And it was that point that I was like, oh my word. So you're talking about every survivor that we're working with through Scarlet Rep Project has been in the system or they have been maltreated uh, with physical, sexual abuse, neglect, those kinds of things and adverse childhood experiences. So it, I had to ask myself, what can I do as a, an employee of Department of Children's Services to do more for our foster children in terms of education, decreasing the prevalence of uh, sex trafficking um, with our youth in care. So I, I do, I agree with you. Uh, talking about trafficking in the foster care circles is extremely important. And we, we talked about a few of the risk factors, but can you kind of walk us through the risk factors that you think really do fall heavily on foster care children? Okay. We wouldn't have sex trafficking if there wasn't people asking for that to happen and, and providing money and financial gain. But where do those uh, victims come from? And we do see in the data, a lot of those children are and youth are coming from the child welfare system, from foster care. One of the main reasons for that is we already know that just coming into foster care places children in a more vulnerable, high-risk category for you know future risky behavior, adversity, um, and so we talk about that through our ACEs information that we talk about in Tennessee very often. But because of that, that's what traffickers are looking for, those vulnerable children. And so kids who have been moved a lot in the foster care system, if they've had many, many placements, that puts them at a higher risk. If they have had drug dependency or their family has had drug addictions, that puts them at a higher risk for this as well. If they've had child maltreatment of any type, but especially sexual abuse, it makes them maybe sense that that's the only way that they can gain love and attention is through sexual acts because that's what they've, they've known sometimes their whole life. And so that also makes them more susceptible to trafficking and who a pimp or trafficker would target. You know, there's some research that, that says only 3% of foster children exiting the system complete a four-year education. So when you talk about aging out of the system or being away from a child welfare system that provides support, you are finding very few that are actually seeking additional educational opportunities and moving into the workforce are the numbers are very low. Again, that keeps them in a vulnerable place, even at older ages, uh, where they feel like they, they may have to uh, participate even when they're being forced to continue to do that. A lot of the times, the traffickers are people that look like you and me. If you watch the news, if you see anything about Tennessee Bureau of Investigations and any of their sting operations against trafficking, if you look at the names and employment of these traffickers, what you're going to find are they hold down jobs that are like like ours. We, you know, we they're the people that we work beside. They're the people we go to church with. They're the people that are in our neighborhood and in in our schools. Um, I think we have to stop thinking that these criminals are strangers. They recruit people to go in and become boyfriends or girlfriends or best friends or mother figures um, to our kids who they know are vulnerable. And then they provide them with the money and jewelry and uh, expensive items, clothes, food. They give them a phone 
um, and they reach out to them and they, they feel that gap where they have not received the attention or they have not received what they've needed. Uh, and all of a sudden now you have a person who is interested, who say that they love them, who pretend to be uh, a caring adult in their life, but they're not. Once they lure them in and provide them with these things, it can become very scary at that point. I want to touch on what we can do before any of this is to happen. Can we take preventative measures in keeping the children in your home safe and away from being targeted? Something that we have to identify first is where does trafficking happen? Excellent question. It can happen anywhere. Um, and we do know that there are there are specific ways that kids are, you know, come in contact with perpetrators. Um, so obviously social media is one that we, we've heard so much about over the years. Um, and it is, uh, you know, traffickers are seeking out chat rooms of every kind. You've got apps with back doors. You've got private apps that can be hidden in other seemingly normal um, apps. And it makes it very difficult for us to be able to monitor that. But they're watching those chat logs. They're looking for those stories of kids who are voicing their loneliness or how they are not doing well at home or how nobody loves them and, and they're really wanting a boyfriend. And so they find out what the need is and they jump in to rescue them. And social media is a really huge platform with that. So we, you know, I would say that's one of the the biggest places that we that we find. It's not the only, there's so many. Um, so that could include escort services with ads. They present kids with this or kids are placed on escort services. That might be one way that traffickers use them. But also, Tony, we have kids who have come into care because they were trafficked by their family. I don't want us to forget that families also are, are exploiters of their own children, their birth children. Families will traffic for money, drugs, their rent for food. Uh, if they're feeling desperate for those kinds of financial gains, it could be greed. Um, they could have had uh, that life. I've seen uh, women, Scarlet Rope and other places say they were born into it. They don't know when it started for them because that was a something from the very beginning of their life that they knew. So we're going to see families exploiting their own children. Uh, and sometimes that is for survival. School, I think, is one that we, we should probably spend a lot more time talking about as, you know, as a foster care system. Traffickers are going to recruit young boys, young girls to lure youth into that life through pretending to be a boyfriend, a girlfriend. And, and it seems very innocent because, hey, they're my age or a little bit older. Um, they are offering me all these things. They say they love me. They're giving me all the things that I'm missing or I feel like that I'm missing um, from my life. And so I think that's one that we have to be really cognizant of. They make those promises. They, they provide them extra pocket money, just like you were saying earlier. Yeah, I think about high schoolers, how they are, they're already going through so many changes and you have that additional piece peer pressure just to just to keep up with with your classmates in that setting as well. I, I think that's something that adds to that pressure to, to kind of conform or to, to kind of follow along with your with your other classmates. So I'll tell you a story about that. A young girl who was struggling with identity. We know adolescence is such a time for trying to figure out who are we? What are we doing? And this one girl in particular that I know, she had boys at school who 
began showing her attention. They kept on and kept on and she really liked it. Obviously, we all do. All of us as humans like that and need that. One of them finally asked her to expose herself, send a, a nude photo of herself. And she did that because he had developed this trust. He was not part of a trafficking scheme. But I think a really important thing to, to think about is when he takes that picture, that picture is always there or, or when she sends it. And what happens is, and we've seen a lot of this too, then that youth can say, I've got this picture. If you don't do A, B, and C, that picture is going to go out to your family, into social media, and something as innocent as trying to befriend someone and make friendships turns into something that is criminal, where they're sharing that and they're possibly destroying the life of a child. And if you take it a step further, this is what traffickers do as well. If they get their hands on photos, they can use that as leverage. So I think it's important for us to know what our youth are doing. If they're a lot of monitoring and supervision, I think that's you know key when we're talking about any youth, whether they're in foster care or not. Uh, but I, I do think what you said is so true. At that age, kids are seeking approval. They want approval from not only adults, but they want approval from youth, especially their friends, right? It's kind of becoming clearer to see how the definition of a prisoner is so broadened. I think that's where slavery comes in, Tony. The word slavery is just that. They take everything they can find about you and they exploit it to where you are enslaved to that that criminal behavior and industry. And you're too afraid to do anything for fear that you will be exploited. Your family will not love you. You will be excluded from everything. So that sometimes I feel like our kids are going to hang on to those things because they don't want to lose um, what they have in their life, what little sometimes they have in their life. So we're looking at social media. We're seeing, you know, needs are being met by these traffickers, and that is a form of coercion. But are there other tactics that they would use in trafficking as well? So one of the biggest tactics is their targeting of vulnerable children, especially runaways. I think another thing that really stood out for me is that our runaways are the most vulnerable and the most targeted by our traffickers. I'm going to just tell you, Tony, traffickers are targeting them because they know that when children step away from a place that is providing them financially closed safety, then um, they're going to need a place to stay. They're going to need food. They're going to need clothing. So then it becomes pretty easy to dangle those kinds of things in front of a runaway because the need is so great at that point. And so they provide them with items and, and foster parents may see, you know, some of these items, if it, if they don't get lured and kept, if they, they're doing this from um, the base of their foster home, you might see, you know, you might see some signs that that's going on, but running away gives uh, this window. That's why it's so vital that we, we try to find children who run away as quickly as possible, because not only are we looking for them, the traffickers are looking for them, they're preying on them. So if they aren't able to go back to their foster home or to their birth home, then that leaves the possibility of them being homeless, which leaves them completely exposed um, to traffickers and people who want to do them harm. Kind of the scarier things that I found was the idea that a trauma bond is then developed. This connection is made between the child being trafficked and the trafficker themselves. Do you know how this trauma bond is developed? If you think about this in the simplest terms, you're talking about children who have already endured abuse, assault, neglect, drug abuse, poverty. So when you say that they push some of those things away, that's part of who they have been in their youth sometimes. So 
when you add receiving of lots of money or some money or, or drugs of your choice or all these extra clothes or these promises, it's not a stretch to think that a child who has already been victimized sometimes all of their life to lean towards an abuser because of the things that they're getting. I mean, this is just another part of their trauma. So we look at it as how could they possibly do that? Well, if you've got a, a home that has very rigid rules, doesn't allow the child normalcy, they're not allowed to be you know, partaking in any activities. Nobody's really interested in what they're interested in. If you've got that, you're not wanting to be there anyway, because you feel like nobody really cares about what you want. You have no voice. So now you're taking that same adversity that you've had your entire life, that same trauma. You're just moving it over to a trafficking situation. But now you're getting someone who says they care. They may, they could possibly beat you. And just like a domestic violence situation, if I harm you, but then the next day I make up to you with extra money or extra clothes or extra food, it starts blurring that line between caring and, and not caring. And of course, we know that it's total victimization. It's totally criminal. They're totally being exploited for a child who has gone through those adverse childhood experiences their whole life. How is this different? based on these trauma bonds, at some point, whether it's fear for your life or fear for your family's life or an addiction to drugs that they are the ones that provide you, there have been children or youth who they're not chained up at all. Now they've crossed into a point where they don't have any way to escape. What would you say to act as some sort of preventative measure to prevent this from happening? Before you can really talk to your to your youth about trafficking, you as a parent, me as a parent, we need to find out as much as possible about trafficking. Ways you can talk to your kids about sex trafficking, conversation starters and crucial questions to ask and those kinds of things. Um, and I think as a parent, uh, what we talk about in Tennessee Key and any of the information that we provide to our foster parents is relationship building. And that before we can do anything else, there must be a connection. We talk about circle of security. A child is not going to stay in a place or be open and trusting in a place that is not safe. I think safety is paramount and it's one of the things, if you really think about it, safety is the foundation for all of us. We're not any of us wanting to stay in a place where we do not feel safe as adults, children, or anybody. I think first and foremost, as a foster parent, we need to provide as much safety as possible. And a lot of times that's going to be giving them space, but not space away from you necessarily, space for them to express their big emotions uh, in a safe way, you assisting them in trying to figure out what those emotions are, putting some names to that, which is going to involve communication, right? But I think safety is something that even if you close all the locks and look under the bed and in the closet um, until you reach felt safety with a child, there's always going to be that concern that they're not going to feel completely safe. We have to remember they don't know us as foster parents. They don't know who we are when they come to our home. They don't know what we're going to do. And their experience and their brain development tells them that certain things are going to happen when you're with adults. So when they come to our home, how do we expect them to think that something completely different is going to happen in this home with these adults, right? Um, so I think it's important to set that boundary of safety. And that can mean things like providing safety rules. We all are, we can be alone in the bathroom. We, we all are clothed. You know, we all follow the rules. 
You deserve to feel safe. So I think just setting that up for them as a place where they can come and relax, uh, where those connections can be built. As long as uh, their lid is flipped, if you will, uh, when they're on guard or in survival mode, it's very difficult for them to feel that. So that's, I think, the very first thing that we have to do as foster parents when we're wanting to know what to say or do is find that safety for them or help them discover that safety. And another thing, a child really wants to be heard. There have been many times that I have heard youth say in custody that they just wish someone would listen. This might be listening to their day, listening to them talk about a video game. It might be listening to them about their feelings. It might be listening to them about any and everything that's going on with them, but it could also be about their plan of care. One of the things that I've read and noted is that children who are not placed with siblings are going to be at a higher risk for running away. So talking to them about their feelings, about their siblings not being with them, about their birth families, it's one of the reasons why we talk so much at DCS about working with the birth parents to decrease those trust issues that they may have when they see us partnering with them. I think that gives them a sense that they are safe, that that helps them develop that felt safety. Um, and, and if we can get them into visits with their siblings more often, if there are ways we can find to have children feel like they're being heard, I think that's really a very important thing is just listening to what they have to say. Last thing is being interested in what a child is interested in. If they don't have interest, help them find interest. Help them be involved in things at school. Uh, We see that one of the risk factors or one of the red flags, if you will, is children who are skipping school and not keeping up with their schoolwork or their education is suffering Uh, are going to be at a huge risk for trafficking and other risky behaviors. So being interested in their schoolwork, being interested in their school activities, uh, really helping them excel there. Because when we can keep them motivated to stay in school, we are really giving them the tools to combat those um, aggressive traffickers who are trying to lure them in to the trade of sex trafficking. So what are some other things that you can do from day one of being a foster parent? Let's say you lucked out and you listened to this episode the same day you got a foster (laughs) child. What are some things that you can do day one? The number one thing, again, is that providing the safety and really allowing them to have space to acclimate themselves to your home, to your family that are not threatening. And I've told people over the years, one of the first things that you can do is go out to eat. You're in public. They don't feel pressure of sitting in a strange home. Uh, You get an idea of what they like to eat because they're ordering what they want from a menu. Um, Sometimes it just feels less threatening or too much pressures going on in that kind of setting. So, you know, try to find a very neutral place to be and really just listen. If they are not talking, not pressuring them, uh, let them acclimate at their, their level of comfort and on their time frame, right? Also include them in decisions. If you're going to be um, making decisions about activities or things to do, ask them, what do you think we should do? They may have no idea. 
and they may not say anything. But I think just involving them in family activities, uh, family discussions, uh, those kinds of things are really helpful. Uh, as I've been doing some research in this over the years, one of the things that kind of comes up is the reasonable and prudent parenting standard that uh, came from the Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act. And out of that act came the Creating Normalcy Through Prudent Parenting curriculum that we provide for foster parents. And because it was attached to Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act, you already see that there's a there's a trafficking connection. And Part of what that act is asking us to do as foster parents is to create as much normalcy as possible. Now, we know we have to weigh in on on risk factors and things that can create more harm, but at the same time, finding uh, as much opportunity for children to feel normal and not so much like a foster child. If every child in my home has a cell phone and I'm not allowed to have one, then that is not a sense of normalcy for that child. Uh, so I think just trying to find ways to create that normalcy, let them go out for cheerleading, let them join, um, you know, reading groups or or football or, you know, any kind of sports or theater that they that they want to be involved in just to have that normal feeling. If you want to know more about um, ways that you can do that, enroll in our um, Creating Normalcy Through Parent Parenting class that online and virtual for for families to join in and, and participate in. But another thing that I think is really vitally important, creating boundaries creates safety. Creating structure and boundaries may be one of the most important gifts that you can give a child. And if I, if a child knows exactly what to expect, what's coming down the pike, when dinner is, when to come home, when, all those things that most of us had growing up, we knew through just living in a home with parents what that schedule was going to be like. Our kids need that. They need so much structure. When they have that structure, structure and boundary, that safety is going to grow, 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 grow. And they're going to really start feeling like, you know what? I don't have to worry in this home. I don't have to worry where my next meal is coming. I don't have to worry about uh, too much time on my hands to talk to the wrong people or do the wrong things, right? So I think that there's something to be said about creating those right away. And that doesn't have to be rigid. That doesn't have to be negative. When my kids are growing up, I usually gave boundaries. Okay, you can go to the mailbox and then to that tree. And if you stay in that area, you know, and that, that protected them. That kept them safe from, from cars or tra whatever the case. As they got older, we expand that. So let's say a 14-year-old comes in. Sometimes we have to start small. We don't know what they're, what you know, wh what they need exactly at that moment. And we can just grow out as we learn the child. And I think then finally, that's another thing that we can do to prevent right away. Find out who our kids are. You don't have to hound them. You don't have to uh, ask them 30 questions. Uh, one of the things that we, we work on in uh, Tennessee Key is if you really knew me, you would know that. Make it a game. It doesn't have to be that one, but something fun like, girl, if you really knew me, you, you would know that I'm addicted to Diet Dr. Pepper, <laughs> right? Whatever the case may be. If we make it fun, we might find out fun, fun facts about our kids too. Know where our kids are at all times. Provide supervision even when we think that they're too old for that. Know who their friends are. Don't be their friend, be their parent. Uh, but really start finding out where they live, where they go, where their hangouts are, what their habits are, what their interests are. And the way we build trust, you talked about this a lot. If I'm building a relationship with someone, it means if I say I'm going to do something, I follow through. Because after a while, if I don't, you're not going to stick around to be my friend. Uh, you're going to go and try to find somebody who is trustworthy. 
So I think when we say it, we mean it. Another thing is um, to not be judgmental and let them know that we're there no matter what. One of the biggest things that stands out, and foster parents tell me all the time, um, was a standout for them, was the Josh Ship video that they saw prior to informational meeting. One of the things that Josh Ship talks about is how his foster parents, specifically his foster dad, was like, I don't know what's going on. You can keep doing those things, but we're not going anywhere. And we know from just experience that kids are going to push to see how much we'll take. They're used to people giving in and maybe multiple placements. If we can have that stick to um, that our kids need, and that's hard, you know, um, but when we do, I think that really helps them to feel safe and feel wanted and to feel loved. We always want to prepare for everything. What steps should you take as a foster parent when you realize that there is a, a child who's run away from your home? Okay, so once a foster parent determines a child has fled or absconded, immediately contact law enforcement and then your FSW. Important maybe to have a recent photo of them available, a list of their friends, uh, maybe what their schedule is for that day, what clothes they're wearing the last time, maybe some of the items that you you saw them take or you remember them wearing. So also I think important things to remember is if you have observed anything new, any new behavior, new clothing, new tattoos, extra money that they probably shouldn't have, if there is explicit sexual content on their social media, on their computer or phone and gifts, jewelry, a phone that you can't account for. So these are also important things to note because these are red flags that they are possibly involved in sex trafficking. What are some actions that you would take or what are some things that you might talk to them about if they do decide to come home during this situation? So a couple things have happened over the years with families that I've worked with. One, law enforcement could bring them back. Two, they could come back on their own. Or three, they could decide, you know, the FSW could decide that they don't need to go back to the home for whatever reason. So there's several things that can go on. If they are brought back to your home, I mean, there are obviously choices uh, that you'll that you'll have to make as a foster parent. If possible, if a foster parent can bring them back in with as little judgment as possible. Actually, no judgment at all would be would be great. So if a foster parent could accept them back in and just continue to provide care for them and love and support for them with maybe some other parameters, that's going to go much further than consequences surrounding them leaving. Also think at that point when they come back, one of the things I've asked foster parents to do over the years is Maybe have a, if you've got communication with them, ask them, you know, what are some things that um, make you feel like you want to run away? Maybe before they ever run away, if they've had that behavior before, ask them, you know, what, what caused you to run away? Was there something that happened? What can we do to keep that from happening here? You know, if you feel it, please come to me first. You know, talk to them about the dangers of, of strangers approaching. I think this is going to be that critical period where we can say um, and start educating them about the dangers of being out alone and away from that safe base. And I don't think this has to come from a place of trying to scare them. Just an educational conversation about the dangers and ins and outs of trafficking can go a long way. I dare say that most kids have no idea if they've never been in the trafficking life, um, what that's going to look like once they're out there and they have traffickers uh, targeting them and dangling money, you know, a home and, and other things in front of them. 
We need to be there as the baseline for them to be able to work through this and get to a, a safer point. Every behavior is a form of communication. And we know that, like you said, that there's underlying things that might be going on. It could be trouble at school. It could be trouble with a friend, a breakup, other things going on. Maybe they've missed a visit. So you really would want to assess, you know, what was happening at the moment that they left? Did something happen uh, with court, with a visit? Is it a holiday? Is it an anniversary? Some of those uh, triggers that we talk about in Tennessee Key. What are some things that happened? Keep a journal, write notes. When you see a child going through some of those um, same behaviors that maybe led to runaway, that would be a time to become proactive and maybe start uh, having discussions with them, um, maybe create a safety plan. Right. And we've kind of already gotten into the what happens after the, the healing stage. So how can we then make a difference uh, after all of this has happened? It's important to, to have that assessment period after a runaway situation. I mean, obviously, we have to assess if there was some contact with the trafficker. You know, I think there are things that we may have to assess during that period, um, and it may involve counseling and therapy. Uh, we may need to uh, provide for them a more structured environment, spending one-on-one -on -one time with them, uh, trying to set aside time at least once a week even if it's for 15 or 20 minutes to give undivided attention, to really spend time just listening and being there for them and being consistent with what you say, sticking with, if I say it, I mean it. I'm going to follow through. I'm not going to tell you something that's not going to happen. I'm going to be there. And I'm also going to be that per, that supportive adult in your life. And really part of being that supportive adult where trafficking is concerned is I am here for you. I'm providing safety for you. When you are with me, you will be safe and trying to let them know or feel that trafficking is never going to hold up to what they are being given in the foster home. Absolutely. So I just want to thank you once again, uh, Andrea, for joining us. If you want more information about this, contact the Office of Training and Professional Development. We have resources available if you want to continue this education at home. But we thank you for listening. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you so much. This was great, Tony. I appreciate it. And I'm excited about families learning more about this topic.